Sylvester Stallone at age 70? What aging male star should be added to the cast of Expendables for A New Hope, Dawn of the Planet of the AARP? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Liam Neeson seems inevitable, right? I'm Joanna Robinson. I'm going with Sir Anthony Hopkins. I'm going to go with, I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Sam Waterston, because they're going to need a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with Alfred Molina, because I will go with Alfred Molina in just about any situation. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 35 for Tuesday, August 12th, 2014. In the week since Joanna Robinson has joined us as our uh, August co-host, uh, we've gotten some new reviews. David, would you like to read one? <laughs> we have three new reviews, uh, and I'll read them in descending, uh, <laughs> you know, favor that they gave us. The first uh, is by CB Mo, and then some numbers. Very, very listenable. Four stars. Great audio quality. The second from Meh. Oh no, sorry. DJ Vegas Nine. <laughs> the subject is Meh. Two stars. This podcast usually features hacks on hacks on hacks, unless they have Joanna Robinson on. No insight or discussion on movie news. Highly suggest trying out the Screen Rant Underground podcast. Hey, there you go. We're very transparent and open to all reviews. I I think it's bold of us to read these. Interestingly, this will be one of the... We are the true heroes, I think. This is going to be one of the few episodes where we actually do talk about something that could qualify as movie news. Um... And finally, one star, Palm of Forty Sorrows, subject, Lost a Listener. Been listening since the Opkino days, found David a useful member, but am no quit of them because of him. His sneering condescension towards any Marvel movie is now a mania, and he cannot even wait his turn before he starts in with his nonsense. What happened to you, David? Good riddance, David. Oh. Learn not to be such a snob. Wait, did, did Dave write this review? Is that why he uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, please uh, come back. We'll make it up to you. If you're out there listening, we would love for you to please leave us some reviews, preferably of a more positive variety. Either way, apparently, because we are gluttons for punishment and praise, we will read them on the show. They help us find new listeners, uh, so they're all appreciated one way or the other. We hope you enjoy the show, though. And if you... Do want to mention me by name? Please do it in a positive review for the show. Because <laughs> yeah, I go, feel Joanna. like this is my fault. Yeah, we're starting Aww. the rumor that Joanna has brought in only people who hate us and like her for some reason, and uh, I feel like we can find that middle ground. <laughs> this is true Game of Thrones. Wherever Joanna goes, she brings the backstabbing <laughs> politics of Game of Thrones. <laughs> does that make her the Varys, or who does that? I don't even. Listeners I can't even begin this to think about week. that. Oh, I'm in definitely Littlefinger. Oh yeah. <laughs> Well, that means you're in charge, so that's fine with me. Anyway, <laughs> on with the show. Uh, we will be talking about <laughs> wow. Robin Robin Williams' uh, untimely death, which uh, occurred, if you're listening to this on the day we premiered it on Tuesday, it happened yesterday, uh, in our third segment, but we're going to start off with something we had already planned on talking about, 
which is prompted by Brian Lee O'Malley's wonderful, I think wonderful, uh, new graphic novel, Seconds, which uh, Brian Lee O'Malley being the author of uh, Scott Pilgrim series. And Seconds is either his second or third. I'm not, I mean, truth be told, Seconds is probably the second English language graphic novel that I've ever read in my entire life, and the first was Mouse. <laughs> so I am hardly the expert here. Uh, I think I, I've read Drawn and Quarterly has been putting out a number of really beautifully packaged, uh, like old mangas uh, about World War II in Japan, which I find fascinating. I read those regularly, but other than that, you got Seconds and Mouse. Um, and so uh, you didn't even read Scott Pilgrim. I didn't even read Scott oh, Pilgrim. Oh, interesting. Did we establish that you had read Watchmen? I, uh, that's that's our dirty secret that I realized after I tweeted something to that effect that I actually had Red Watchmen <laughs> on a plane. But that will also I'm glad you brought that up because that's going to factor into this conversation as well. Um, but seconds, uh, I, it appealed to me because a lot of people that I trust uh, were saying very good things about it. But it's also beautiful. It's it's a beautiful hardcover single volume work. Uh, it's lushly color animation. Um, it, it really is a beautiful object to own and have on your bookshelf. And as somebody like me who fetishizes the likes of Criterion Collection and graphic design and things like that, uh, you know, regardless of the quality of the the text, which I was pleasantly surprised, I guess, was uh, was really wonderful. Um, this was something that I wanted to have. Uh, but what was really a really interesting phenomenon of reading seconds is that. You know, I think whenever I read anything of any medium, I, my, t- my, my tendency is simply to imagine what it would be like as a movie. And with graphic novels, that is a much more streamlined process than it is with uh, you know, text-oriented novels because they're essentially, when, especially when they're done well, I mean, they're very vivid storyboards. Uh, but Seconds really doesn't leave much wiggle room because it feels like the storyboards for an Edgar Wright film. And of course, Edgar Wright directed the Scott Pilgrim film. And I, I was, someone was telling me that it's sort of uh, on the record that Brian Lee O'Malley was deeply influenced by Edgar Wright's style for the sixth and uh, the, his adaptation of his own books um, for the sixth and final volume of Scott Pilgrim. And what's seconds seems to leave very little wiggle room uh, because it feels like a storyboards for an Edgar Wright movie. It feels like, okay, if anyone's going to direct this, I want it to be Edgar Wright. But on the flip side of that, why would I ever want someone like Edgar Wright to spend his time adapting this, which none of this has been discussed. This is all conjecture and hopefully won't happen because there's no need for it. I can, by virtue of being familiar with his work and how deeply it's informed this graphic novel, see that whole movie down to the, the sound uh, right on the page for me. The work, the work is done. Uh, and it made me think, especially as we build up to the release of Build Up, I don't know how climactic we're making it, uh, of the new Sin City film. Um, and I'm thinking about Zack Snyder's influence on the genre as a whole, going back to 300 and, and Watchmen, uh, and then uh, Robert Rodriguez's original Sin City film, of these movies that are adapted from graphic novels, not so much as adapted, but transposed. And we've talked about this, I think, on the show before, but just uh, how, what, what is the artistry? Where, and this is sort of what I'm opening up the question on the floor to you guys, is what artistry is involved when you see um, a Zack Snyder, when you see Zack Snyder's Watchmen and you see 300, and you're, they're literally taking uh, these verbatim comic panels and, and just putting them in motion. Uh, motion that was implied on the page, but it's made with, it's made real with, uh, you know, a buffet Although Edgar of Wright things. does do the same thing in his adaptation And what's the difference there? Yeah. Right, so my question well, there is, like, <laughs> I, I find 
those movies exasperating, and I think that Scott Pilgrim is wonderful. So does it simply boil down to the uh, the content? Is Edgar Wright doing something fundamentally informally different to elevate these panels into something new? What do you think? I, I think he is because you know the danger of taking something that square flat panels and putting them on the screen is that you get a flat affect, and that's what I felt in Sin City and Three Hundred. I I still liked it better than I thought I would, but I think those movies are flat emotionally. And because Edgar Wright is such a dynamic actor, uh, director, not just with Scott Pilgrim, with all of his stuff, his like quick cuts, all of his action sound effects that he uses in the in the like Cornetto trilogy, he's perfect for this medium. And I agree with you. I read about half of seconds today, and I could, like, hear Bill Hader's voice for, like, the narration on the page, and there is such an incestuous relationship now between Brian Lee O'Malley's work and mm. Edgar Wright's stuff, and and the style of Seconds is, is exactly the same as Scott Pilgrim, um, graphic novel-wise, um, but it's his own thing. It's even better, I think, and... Um, but isn't it less informed by video games or by a kinetic style? I, I flipped through the first few pages of this, and you know, one thing that stands out is that the main character, despite all of her uh, surroundings being pretty naturalistic, I would say, she is kind of this classic Japanese chibi, or this kind of like small, bright eyed. That's what Scott Pilgrim looks like, too. Well, that's not the. Well. I don't know. I don't know how much you read, or if you confuse the main character for her sort of the the, no, the red-haired girl with the spike. She's short and spiky hair. She does have like big eyes, and like especially when you contrast her with the guy who plays her She's ex-boyfriend, much more who looks than the rest n- who naturalistically drawn and more so than her. I could see that, but uh, yeah, no, there isn't the video game influence, but there's still that kinetic energy off the page with the but way so- she moves. When you when you s- reflect on Scott Pilgrim, the film, having seconds so fresh in your mind and seeing sort of that incestuous re- relationship, as you noted, between Edgar Wright's style and Brian Lee O'Malley's, not that we're necessarily interested in tracing its origins right now, but can simply point out existing in, in the wild, uh, does it cheapen your affection for the Scott Pilgrim film or for what Edgar Wright brought to the property? Does it, like, how, how do these things inform one another and why... Um, I, I just like. Would there be any value, even if you've only read half of seconds, in making it into a movie, or is is there a certain strain of graphic novel? And I open this up to people who've read more than I have um, that that doesn't invite that sort of adaptation as much because it does such a good job of leading your eye and and having your eye sort of leash along your imagination. I mean, I'm I'm fairly new to reading um, comics and graphic novels in general, but. Um I think that Brian Lee O'Malley's style... I would love to see Edgar Wright do this, actually. I disagree with you. And if Brian Lee O'Malley does one more thing, I would love an Edgar Wright, Brian Lee O'Malley trilogy to, like, just have... You're already going to the trilogy. <laughs> and, like, see... But then stop there. Stop at the trilogy. But, you know, I'm, like, I can, I'm already casting it. I'm, like, oh, Mae Whitman and, like, all these... Ca- you know, like, I can I can see it and I want to see it. But and isn't I, I David's hear- point that it's already kind of, like, you can see it already and therefore it doesn't need to be a yeah, film? Like, do you like, need, wouldn't you rather do you them collaborate on money? Do you need them to spend the time? Like, isn't it isn't it all there for you? What would you be getting out of it that is not provided by the graphic novel? I guess the ability to share it with people who refuse to read graphic novels, uh. because because Scott Pilgrim, you can share with people who don't read graphic novels because it, you know people's mileage may vary on that film, but it is a, an easier medium for people to swallow. And I just I really loved what he I love Scott Pilgrim so I much. I think uh, you sort of hit on something that has been eluding me for a little while now. I'm trying to understand why people get 
it, it goes back to like Harry Potter and things like that, where you these people, these people, fans know <laughs> these stories, they know these properties so well. It's like, what can you possibly be excited? What sort of surprises could there be in store for you? And you see it with Marvel fans uh, now, where it's you know they they want to know who's playing every character and and they know what arcs these characters are following. And I'm like, what what is in this? Well, for the you thrill of the point? decision, the thrill of seeing it executed okay, yeah, in a different but, medium. There's something. I mean, even the Zack Snyder films. I think 300 is more successful than Watchmen in this way because perhaps because we're less familiar with 300, the comic book. But I don't want to stray away from Joanna's point, which was that the I think especially in these fandoms, there is a very real desire to that excitement of sharing these things. I think you know the Scott Pilgrim crowd that was really mobilized in army-like fashion for that movie. You know, and much good it did for its box office, but. Uh, um, you know, they, they were doing it because they had this thing they love and finally somebody put a megaphone to it uh, and allowed their love to be validated and shared in a much wider capacity. But than I mean, that's not before. why Edgar Wright made the movie. I no, mean, he must have a, saying, same, a same thrill about wanting to lift this off the page and animate it. In but some it way, does, right? it does sort of, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if this is at all motivating Edgar Wright. I think Edgar Wright probably understood how the Scott Pilgrim graphic novel could, and beyond its you know, its themes and whatnot, but how its style played into something that he was already developing. And I think it probably also been informed by Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, and this was all very uh, cyclical. But I think that, you know, that's that's why people don't mind, they don't see, when you're not a fan, you look at something like Sin City, you look at something, especially 300, mm-hmm. I remember when they were showing the, the comic panels matched against the movie stills, and I was like, who could possibly, how much do you have to hate new things and creativity <laughs> to care about this. And yet and yet Sin City was kind of breaking new ground. I mean, it's hard to recall 10 years ago now that that movie came out. Um, but doing the things it was doing with CG and green screen, it felt pretty innovative, if not dull. I mean, I've had the same reception to Sin City and to Sin City 2, which I shouldn't talk too much about. Ooh, but I find spoiler. both of them interesting visually just about what you can do with green screen and how you can transition between moments when it's not quite mocap, it's not quite live action, it's somewhere in between and how can you have these really dynamic frames that seem only possible when you're illustrating? I mean, to just put them into movement, I can see the appeal. I don't think Robert Rodriguez has the ingenuity to really push it beyond that like Edgar Wright who finds an essence to Scott Pilgrim to make this kinetic energy dance along the floor and like have these big battle scenes and and ignite the screen with gaming imagery and see what that can do when fused with film. I mean, Sin City really is just a couple moving pictures, um, but it was one of the first and it, it has an appeal in that way. There's no reason to have a Sin City 2, really, because we've seen it done. And um, I feel the same about 300. 300 at least continued to push the envelope and tried to be these kind of living paintings these this kind of uh, animated chiaroscuro in some way <laughs> and that's why watchmen fails right it's just putting watchmen on a pedestal and trying to recreate these frames that yes we we adore them as illustrated by dave gibbons and written by alan moore but um there's no reason there's no energy there that we need to see them live action we're more interested in the storytelling we're more uh, interested in in 
the the mystery, the intrigue. All right. Well, just to to wrap, I would say uh, if if you are someone who is reading this and, and begging Edgar Wright to make a movie of it, which it's perfectly I'm not fine. Begging. But just I'm not saying I'm, I'm not saying you are, I'm, <laughs> and I'm saying that even if you were, it would be perfectly fine. I would just ask that people. I always think, regardless of what the things are, that it's always good to take stock of why you want things and right. just to question the value of these things. And also, I think uh, maybe Joanna, if you can half agree with me that Seconds is uh, is pretty fantastic and uh, that I would recommend you pick it up if you haven't already. It's got amazing stuff for women, which is always, you know, my boring banner that I want to fly. But, like, you know, if you want to talk about the Bechdel test, like this... This story passes out with flying colors. And um, and the last thing I want to say about Edgar Wright's style is that, you know, even in a movie with, like, Hot Fuzz or even going back to Spaced, like, his movies sometimes look like um, a storyboard. Well, he'll have, like, you know, shot of the door closing, shot of the coat on the door, like, shot, you know, it's not a fluidity. He's He was already telling stories in panels. And so it's a natural fit. It might not, it might seem overkill for him to do it again, but... Um, it's a good story, so I would like to share it with people who don't want to read it on the page. So. David, I have a quick question before we move on. Out of all the comic books, why was this the first one that you picked up since Mouse? Why this one? <laughs> well, like I said, I mean, it's 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 a pedigree that I'm familiar with because I saw and loved the Scott Pilgrim movie, and but it's you never a, read the Scott Pilgrim comic. No, and it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's it's really design goes a long way with me. So, so would you ever go back to the Scott Pilgrim comic? I have read the like first half of the first one, and after I'd seen the movie, and I was like, why am I doing this? Like they are so symbiotic. I just I don't uh, see life is short. Why? Like this is, seems like I've seen this movie. It's the same. It's just like reading the storyboards for a film you've already seen, but for a medium that I'm not interested in, in actively creating, and so I didn't feel like there was necessarily much to be gained, and there are other comics I could read. That's time I used to read seconds. 30 foot smurfs And everybody wants to be naked and famous Everybody wants to be just like me, I'm naked And So, for our mini-segment tonight, uh, we are going to be talking about a brilliant, Peabody-guaranteed new show on VH1 called Dating Naked. Or as I always call it, because for whatever reason, it just rolls off the tongue for me a little bit better, Naked Dating. Uh, But Dating Naked is a show, and I bet you cannot imagine, cannot guess what it's about. (laughs) But I will do my best to solve this complex riddle for you guys. Is it like Naked Lunch? Uh, it is, I can think of at least two things wrong with that, that title, Patches. Uh, it is uh, not at all like Naked Lunch. It is. Um, William S. Burroughs could never have imagined something this grotesque and amazing. Uh, it is a dating show where it's an hour-long dating show. It really lets you sink into these budding relationships. I was shocked uh, when I turned it on and realized it was an hour long. It's better because of it. It's like, so on. much better because of it. Because uh, about naked uh, people dating naked. It takes place on a resort in Panama where uh, this is legal. And it introduces... Wait, nudity bo- is legal? You can, there are nude beaches in other places. I think for... There must be some reason with the fine print as far as like finding like a hedonism-like resort that allows you to... Uh, film, I don't... Uh, there, there's some reason that's justifying the costs. Maybe it's tax breaks, who knows? But they do it in a resort in Panama. It's the same place every week. There's a guy and a girl. They're both completely naked. There's this hilarious host who tries to use, like, really dime store psychology to justify the entire 
sort of gauche experiment. She's like, being naked is really allows us to strip ourselves of all of the walls that we put up in modern society. It's like, you're no more social media and no more irony. It's just your naked body. No like, okay. Um, all that and, social media resorts in Panama. Right. And, uh, and so they go on dates and each of the, the main couple, the guy and the girl, get three naked dates uh, with, uh, you know, there's, it's always been a member of the opposite sex. They've yet to air a gay episode, but they've only had four episodes so far, I believe. And at the end of every night, they everybody convenes at a, at a pool and invariably, they all immediately take off their clothes because there's alcohol, A, and B, they've all already been naked together. So they're like, what the fuck? And, uh, and then, Literally, yeah. Yeah, and then a bunch of them have sex or don't have sex. And then at the end of the episode, they choose who they want to be with and the they don't hope. have a lot of sex there's more there's a there's a lot more sex than i thought they're on okay behavior no there's uh it was like the third episode there's like first night and then second night she goes back to him um yeah i mean but like and but then the host at the end is always like go start your new relationships and they're like okay <laughs> and then they go back to their two separate cities and never see each other ever again. right because they always it's like oh you live in new york you live in san francisco that will never be an issue in our budding love do they do like uh, a follow-up to like show what happens to these relationships a month later there's like a millionaire matchmaker type uh text at the end a little postscript that says like you know something cute uh, where it's like you know they are now they she finally let him in and stopped playing coy it's like Whoa. euphemisms for like he put his penis inside of her um, but it's it's I think the show is uh, amazing <laughs> and I also want yeah, to why do you think it's sublime because it actually it, it works for me and I I do not like things like The Bachelor which is very popular oh, I, I don't a lot of people I know uh, including very smart people so there's something about The Bachelor that people people are on board with but I like that uh, this show is just one and done with two different yeah people. I couldn't be bothered to care and about those being an hour long on the bachelor for being an hour long is kind of important right like you get to yes, know these oh, people totally. in a, an absurd way <laughs> over the course like th- that was the problem with next right it was right it was so fleeting for us right uh, and next was also the problem with next was uh, that was inherent to its formula was that uh, if and a lot of sh- different shows have had a problem like this as well, but they would introduce the third person off the next bust with uh, three minutes left in the episode, and you would know that this was going to be the person that they ended up with forever and ever and ever, or at least for the rest of the episode. Um, and that, or they would just plow through and next three people in uh, record time. But it's just like in 24 or Lost or when you, you know a, a major thing is coming. There's another show that I can think of that um, – oh, they used to like poker shows all the time. There would always be these big hands at the end of the hour. Anyway. Well, what uh, I was thinking of was Eliminate, which was like another one of those – like a yes. next era show. That, that was one that I – because I hadn't watched a dating show. I mean I don't watch The Bachelor either, so it had been a long time since I'd watched a, a dating show period. But this is exactly as simple as early reality TV where it's like let's see what happens when we put these people on a blind date like before everything got so gimmicky. But then they're just naked. I mean, it's the most gimmicky thing, but then all you're really doing is watching these people awkwardly flirt with each other and talk about blurred out nudity that we can't yeah, see. Yeah, I think. And it's kind of hilariously simple in that yeah, way. Yeah, but it's like deeper than usual, right? Is they, it? In, yeah. in, in the fourth episode, they're like, uh, love, you know, do you think you can be in love once and then be in love again? And these two naked people are like <laughs> but I think trying to do yoga with like, each other while the one guy has a huge erection. That's the line they've been fed by the producers to talk Yeah, but it's about. glorious. But it takes these, these dating shows to the their platonic ideals, their 
illogical conclusion with the gimmicks. I mean, it's just like, instead of all these things that are getting more and more asinine, why don't we just take their clothes and see what happens? <laughs> and it I definitely beats Date My Mom, where you just <laughs> hang out with the parents the whole time. There's, That's a real bug. Oh, I remember that one. Oh, my God. Yeah, There's a horrible. purity to it. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there are the real narratives that I'm sure, you know, these shows are informed by invisible hands uh, all the time. And, and there's not a single reality show that, that isn't heavily manipulated. But there is at least the illusion of purity with this show, in part because of their physical you know, nudity, where it's sort of all unadorned. And, and I think. Uh, yeah, how do they mic them? What an achievement in sound production. Right? And, I, uh, that is actually, I did anything. not think about that. I would uh, love between, to know the answer to this. Between that and Nicole Richie's reality show, which is also new on VH1, which uh, reveals her out of nowhere to be a secret comic genius. I really cannot what? recommend that. Sh- I know, I know. But she's she's hilarious. Um, We're losing credibility even, by the second here. Even if somebody know, is writing so all of her lines, her delivery is just so impeccable that I refuse to, you know, Strip her of her genius tag. Uh, VH1 reality shows, naked, dating naked, and Nicole Richie's whatever. Fantastic. <laughs> Between that and the Nick, you've got a, a fine summer of television. <laughs> Completely logical pairings, right there. I, I, I wish it was really called Nicole Richie's what? <laughs> whatever. I know. I wish they just like whatever. gave up halfway through title. titling it. Yeah. Whatever. You know you're gonna Who's watch Nicole it. Ritchie? You... Nicole Richie, or... yada yada yada. <laughs> It's like Nicole Richie's the Nicole Richie project. It's always the project, you know, like the Mindy project. So whatever. Yeah, project. it's a. That's not a reality show. So much yeah, of a project. With the Mindy Richie. project is the not Jamie a reality Kennedy show. Kennedy experiment. That's the Jamie, experiment. So for our third segment tonight, we're going to downshift slightly from uh, talking about Dating Naked and Nicole Richie to talking about another genius, uh, possibly even eclipses Nicole Richie, I think some would argue. Uh, hours before we sat down to record the show, Robin Williams was uh, pronounced, it was his death was announced, uh, broke up over uh, Twitter, Twitter sphere and whatnot. I guess he hung himself, are the reports, earlier today. Um, and we don't really have any sort of structure to the conversation, although I assume it will find one. Uh, but I think, you know, just to start with the the reaction, the outpouring, I guess, was similar to, you know, fortunately, I don't have a uh, photographic catalog of, of how we respond to these things in my mind. But it seemed like the outpouring of support and the uniformity of it was similar to what happened when Philip Seymour Hoffman died uh, and not very not very frequently repeated beyond that. I mean, there's my Twitter feed was completely consumed by this and all outpourings of, of affection and love and fond memories and personal stories because by all accounts, Robin Williams seemed like a, a pretty phenomenal person to the people that he encountered. Um, despite, you know, whatever demons of his own he was facing. And I guess that's really the best you can do. Uh, but I think uh, this is, it would probably not be much of a stretch to say that he, uh, even more than most beloved icons who die unexpectedly um, and well before their time, probably struck a personal chord with at least some of the other people on the show. 
So I don't know if any of you guys have any places to start beyond the obvious of favorite well, performances or anything like that. Well, I had an actual specific question I wanted to start with because we're yeah. all roughly of the same age and Robin Williams belonged to several different generations and in a lot of different guises. Like a lot of people first knew him as Mork and Mork and Mindy and I think all of us were a little bit too young for that and kind of his golden age in my mind is the period where a lot of people who were fans of him earlier on would they say he was going downhill with Aladdin and Mrs. Doubtfire and Jumanji and Hook and that was kind of that's kind of the Robin Williams that's emblazoned in my brain to me. So do you guys feel the sense of like, do you feel like you knew the real like talent of Robin Williams from having seen those movies? Do you feel like there's a way in which like our generation owes itself to kind of catch up on what else was there because his talent spans so much, such a long time? Uh. I w- I would say that I mean that I would agree that that's my touchstone as well. I mean the, I'm I think I'm a, like teeny bit older than you guys so i would say you know or as your fans call you a hag or <laughs> whatever i don't know i'm just making <laughs> i'm just trying to think of all the terrible people who follow you on the internet um but like the um the dead poet society and good morning vietnam and and, and that sort of stuff um is also i think a little bit more on my radar but that comedy, the comedy era and the mainstream era, I think is what is making the outpouring, the mourning that we're seeing actually even a little bit more than Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I don't mean to, um, it's not really useful to quantify or compare and contrast, except to say that maybe comedians, people who make us laugh, people in the mainstream, the way that he was, you know, that cuts maybe even a little deeper than Philip Seymour Hoffman, who was this amazing dramatic performer. I mean, also a great comedian. Once again, maybe it's completely not useful to compare and contrast, but there's just something about losing a comedian, especially a comedian, like, who has ended in such a tragic way. And I don't mean to go super dark, so maybe I'll just steer it back to your question, which is, I love Hook more than most people have any right to. So, (laughs) that's my answer. There's your generational touch. I don't know. I, uh, you know, I was born in in 84, and I don't really, off the top of my head, know where that puts me as to what what projects Robert Williams was involved in when I was, like, five and and six. Um, He was one of those people that was sort of ubiquitous when I was growing up, and I think uh, that actually probably contributes to the difficulty in pinpointing what I really first saw him in, um, but he struck me as the kind of person that was more of an institution than anything else. He's just someone that was always there. Uh, He was always around. He was uh, as inherent to the movies as I knew them as, uh, you know, cameras, and that uh, you know, I don't I don't know. I, I I didn't. I don't really have any childhood uh, connections to really any actors that I think are so strong and, and stick with me in ways that sneak up on me and and move me. But I, I most of those really stronger connections were made as an adult. And for me, uh, and this is horribly cliched, but for me, the Robin Williams, the Alpha and Omega of Robin Williams performances as they affected my life, uh, is his performance in Good Will Hunting. Yeah. Uh, just because I think you know that that every line of that script has been incorporated into my uh, vernacular and 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 my just the way that people in my life communicate with one another, um, like a sort of uh, addendum to the English language, and so many of you know he was a real revelation for me when I saw that movie, and I think there was a soberness to his performance. Um, and a uh, a clarity to it, emotional emotionally to it, and I think just like how raw it, it felt, and how his characters layers just slowly peered away with his with his wife and whatnot, and how he still sort of remained empathetic, uh, and how his frustrations with this brash 
young kid uh, never got never they, they got the best of him at times but always in a productive way it never really overwhelmed him or, or got him to give up on this kid and that that really stuck with me um and i think yeah i don't know i i, I don't have any deep-seated connection with him but it's it is strange to think of uh, as somebody born in 1984 to think of pop culture without him in it patches Oh, I, I feel the same way. I was telling you guys before the uh, the podcast that like Robin Williams for me was for some reason he was always the person who like um, I, I feel it, I, I feel the same way as David. I've never really had like a, such a strong connection to a performer or something that I would feel at like a great loss or like I've lost someone personal to me. But I do feel with Robin Williams that he was always the person who I'm like. If if I had to see him go, it would be he might be the only, like the first person I would have to watch go that I would really care about. I remember um, I, you mentioned being too young for Mork and Mindy, and I would contend with that because I watched so much Mork and Mindy. I watched a, I watched a decent amount of it on Nick at Night. That, I mean, yeah, Nick at Night. I mean, I just grew up on that, and I mean, I was a total spaz as a kid. And uh, <laughs> my fifth grade yearbook, it's it asked they asked me what do you want to be when you grow up, and I, I wanted to be Jim Carrey or Robin Williams. I wanted to be a funny person. <laughs> You failed. Oh. Well, I'm kind I, of doing that in my no. own insular world. I know. Alone. You're the Robin Williams of this podcast. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, Mork and Minnie was a huge part of that. And uh, obviously when I was younger, it was it was things like Aladdin or even Patch Adams. You know that movie haunts me. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been strange to see all of the, you know, because Philip Seymour Hoffman been dying earlier this year. They were in Patch Adams together. And there are been, you know, on Tumblr and Twitter, uh, screen grabs from oh, that God. movie where they're standing side by oh. side and the quotes God. about if the noodle death. if the noodle squeezing <laughs> lady is dead please do it's not so tell me. it's so discombobulating because that movie is so fucking bad yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, i don't remember being that bad but i haven't seen it it's in 20 years vile but now i can't think of it in without any you know anything but tenderness you know well that was uh, something that um i think devin faraci said it on twitter that like we choose not to remember the many bad movies that robin williams made because we cared about him as a person like you're not gonna I mean, I don't also, think, you, you, I don't you, think you don't Robin want to Williams speak ill of the dead, but like he made bad movies, but we didn't we don't oh. really care about that in terms of his legacy because who he was as a performer overall mattered a lot more. I don't think and he really had a bad stretch until closer to the end. Like I, I think that sort of what, you know, death to Smoochie was death to Smoochie is very interesting. I Jack and Jack is so so befuddlingly strange and and so sentimental in a way that like. I don't know. I find it, its construction is is ridiculous. Jacob and, the liar. But, but like I, from the Centennial Man. Francis Ford Coppola gets the better. I understand. Jacob the liar. <laughs> I have a huge that my professor in in grad school was uh, the guy I really liked directed Jacob the liar. <laughs> and so I am. Uh, I don't name drop. I, name drop. No, alert. no. I think yeah. I, you know, I think he only said good things about Robin Williams. But I think back to Devin's point is that he. It, it wasn't about the roles he did. I think he was really, and this has been a recurring phrase I've seen over the course of the day, and I think really hits a nail on the head, is that he was one of a kind. I mean, like, you take or leave some of the films he did and the performances he gave in them, but he was inimitable. I mean, there was no one like him, and there will be no one like him to well, replace him, and I think that makes the void that much uh, more lucid. Two, two points, like, speaking to that, I, I watched Good Morning Vietnam a few months ago, and there's, mm. I, how could that have 
been a movie before Robin Williams entered the picture. I mean, he dominates that movie. Who could do that that DJ improv the way he does it? It's he's going a mile a minute, and it's so essential to what he's putting out into that film. Putting cocaine out into with cocaine helps. Yeah, I mean, like, cocaine I, does help. But I mean, That's it's true. still like it's still him, right? I don't know if anyone who could go Have you guys- that quickly. And then I just watched The Fisher King too, uh, uh-huh. just last night. Um, totally coincidental. Wait, really? Wow. Yeah, and uh, well, because Terry Gilliam has a new movie coming up. So oh no, like, this is like this crunch, is like good luck down. patches, but the opposite <laughs> and about movies. <laughs> like good luck Chuck. Oh, no. uh, but yeah, so I watched Bad Luck Patches. Bad luck patches. <laughs> and I feel like he is just running on all cylinders there. The, patches, like, please such... go see the the new Matthew Vaughn movie. Hey, all right, let's. <laughs> oh my god! But uh, just speaking of the Fisher King, I don't know if you guys have seen that movie yeah. recently, but I mean, it's. Terry Gilliam has a certain sentimental side to him, certain amount of joy, certain amount of eccentricity that uh, you know that only Robert Williams seems to reflect. I mean, I like many of his films, but The Fisher King is so special because he finds the perfect proxy for himself to kind of like be kind of delusional, be kind of crazy, and being so pure and joyful. Uh, that's Robert Williams. In a, in a nutshell, in a way. I remember watching The Adventures of Baron von Munchausen when I was young and not understanding anything until Robin Williams showed up and then it all made sense. Mm. Um, because he just Play the fits. moon in that film? Mm-hmm. He has like a, yeah, a disconnected head on like a flying saucer thing. And it's just, he's the thing that makes sense in that movie uh, when all else does not. That's how I think Because of, uh, he's just as crazy. You know? That's how I think of so, toys. So we were uh, I loved that movie. <laughs> Toys, yeah, yeah. It's insane, and that's <laughs> it's crazy. We were talking thinker. before we started recording about how I make sense of the social media outpouring for dead celebrities because I think we are all feeling it makes sense to me to a certain degree uh, because we're all sharing the same grief, and it was we all have. Uh, you know, almost identical relationships or non-relationships with these people. It's all uh, mediated through the culture. And when somebody that we know in our own lives dies, it's impossible to have that, to share it in the same way. Um, and that makes it a, a much heavier burden because of it, as it, perhaps it should be. But um, And so I, I, my resistance to sentiment rubs up against my understanding of why they do this and I you know I only had one tweet which was a quote from Google Hunting but you know I contributed to it in my own way as well and as long as people aren't trying to make it about themselves too much I don't really see any problem with it but uh, someone you know immediately when he died or when the news broke that he died there were jokes about um, how we were minutes away from seeing uh, you know drawings of the genie like the empty lamp and like Aladdin and Apu crying over his grave, which is whatever, you know, has been uh, this, this memification of, of, you know, turning properties against the, the people who had owned them. Um, and sure enough, that is, we've seen over the course of the afternoon and the evening, you know, hundreds of variations of Aladdin, the genie crying. I think it's Dave Seven's Twitter avatar now is the genie crying. And when someone like Dave Seven owns something like this, I tend to think well of it because I respect Dave and I think uh, he's coming from a sincere place. Um, but what do we make of this this whole phenomenon? Well, 
this is just your emotional blockade here. People are close to Robin Williams in like an emotional way. I I, I would point to Katie. Katie, you said something really interesting on, on Twitter but, when this all kind of happened about uh, feeling like Robin Williams was a father figure. Oh yeah. But I'm not. I'm not. I'm saying this is specifically not about Robin Williams. Like you know, I'm trying to make this. No, a broader... but I like. I like your point about. I think it goes back to actually what we were talking about in terms of weirdly Edgar Wright this notion of wanting to share feel a communal feel a connection to people and I think you're right in that we all have a fairly good idea of what the other is feeling especially those of us who grew up around the same time our Robin Williams is pretty much the same we have the same interaction with Robin Williams and it's a more superficial interaction than than if you know a, a family member had died and so then you can understand what other people are going through you can share it through memes not to say it's superficial to cheapen it because it still can be very emotional but it's still it's it's connection through images connection through quotes connecting through pop culture which you know we do all the time and i i wager most of the people that we interact with on social media do as well is and there so a line though is there, and I'm not saying that I'm the one to draw it, and I'm not trying to imply that there is necessarily. I mean, I think everybody is going to have a different uh, barometer for these I things. I mean, it's hard. Like, we can't when does be it spill over into this. kitsch? We, well, we can't allow that. We, we can't censor people in that way. You can expect that. You can expect people to post the genie hugging Aladdin for the retweets, right? You can. People indulge in that way. That's like why Facebook was created. There's so many people. I mean, I, I won't get into details, but like tragedy has struck so many times since I've been on Facebook and I've watched people, the outpour, who have just seemed to have no connection whatsoever to this thing. They just want to post something because that's how people are. They get really emotional. But I, I mean, it is important to mention that this Robin Williams, someone we know on screen. I think when we uh, talked about Philip Seymour Hoffman, we talked about how our relationship with these actors is part of the conversation and whatever gut reaction we have that should be allowed to fly in despite other people's cynicism like i will not disparage <laughs> people for posting uh, oh captain my captain from dead poet society because that does move me um and if you want to post aladdin and the genie hugging i mean that probably has a, a poignant feeling for you i mean i, I just and it, can't and like, censor in that way and if you if someone is going to cross the line wouldn't you rather they cross the line in that direction than it over yeah. into like disaffected cynicism about everything i think i think i would i think i think i agree with that yeah it's a i mean that that connection means something which is why cinema means things or why start movie i mean at the very least that movie stardom means anything and i think even though we may rail against the entire concept of stardom and all of you know the various things that hollywood manufactures for us i think we would all agree that that means something i think it's a privilege it's an extraordinary and sort of uh, vile privilege to be in a position where you can be upset over outpourings of uh, kindness and, and fondness, um, you know, that for, for someone who is, uh, you know, objectively not a war criminal, you know, these are not people mourning the death of a terrorist, uh, you know, these are sincere outpourings. You think of all the terrible things happening in the world, not to take it to the most obvious logical conclusion, but I think what a remarkable thing to be in a position where you are upset about people genuinely having these sort of what are at least in their purest forms beautiful thoughts for someone who positively affected their lives there is a way that it, i mean i agree with you that there's a way i used to work with someone who like every single story that um broke 
every day, five stories a day, she would cry over. And five, at least five tragic things happen every single day. That's true. But then when you cry over every single thing, it, you know, then, then my sympathy at some point dries up for her reaction. But once again, I would rather she cross the line in that direction than, you know, more towards the shriveled, black-hearted direction, which is the direction I contend to go into, so. Yeah, and you also yeah. find the thing that you're able to process. Like, when I tweeted the thing about kind of Robin Williams as a father figure from the movies, I heard from multiple people who were, you know, came from families of divorce and saw Mrs. Doubtfire and kind of saw that in there, and that wasn't my right. personal experience of it, but I can see exactly how powerful that could be, and that, you know, when you can't talk to your dad who isn't around and you get to see Robin Williams in that and then he dies, like, you can see how powerful that is. It's like a brain connection that's made that you don't really have control over. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's fair. I think it can be difficult for people to, you know, people use social media in very different ways. And I think, you know, I tend to, uh, n- barring, you know, certain events, I think I tend to use it to talk about movies and, and not... Um, not weighing on things that I am less informed about. Like, I, there are things that are happening in the world that I think are terrible and that uh, make me sick and that I try to keep myself informed to the best of my ability about. But I think it, it can be dangerous to mouth off about things that you're, uh, it, you know, especially because you don't know who's out there. You don't know who could be influenced by what you say. I just, I don't know. So I, I, I would, you know, on the flip side of that, I think that I can imagine somebody not rushing out of their way to, to, to make comments about, you know, sociopolitical events that are galling and that um, really deserve the world's attention, but are still finding the time to comment about Robin Williams because uh, this is a forum which they feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, everyone's an expert about how they feel about Robin Williams or what films of his touch them. Yeah. It's when people start weighing in on, like, because this is, like, tragically a suicide, when people start weighing in on mental health and some opinions are informed and others aren't, I think that's where you get into, like, a weirder territory, especially around Philip Seymour Hoffman's death with, with like, drug abuse and people who don't understand drug abuse or depression trying to opine on it. Um, but, yeah, or like you I tell me, like... You do not want me chiming in on Gaza. I would much right. rather talk about like, Yeah, yeah, when exactly. When we were flying the uh, patients with Ebola over the United States, I mean, you'd have so many people on Twitter being like, what are we doing? Why are we... I mean, it's mostly uh, people on the right wing because somehow this was made into a political issue. <laughs> um, I guess I shouldn't be surprised at this point. But I had the fortune of going out that night with uh, a friend of mine who is a like a chemical... I, I can't even give you the proper term for what she does because she's so much more qualified to do it than I am and had a rational conversation still did not necessarily make it appropriate for me to comment about it on Twitter but I was like okay like this is a lot more productive I would I just it bothers me so much more to see people spouting off on things well, that, that are ill-informed than two, to two things to try and go out on a, on a Robin Williams note here one I would say it still is important in this conversation to consider that this was suicide and depressions involved and you don't need to spout facts and try and go on a, on a tirade on Twitter or something but you do need to consider it and I mean there's people in this world who suffer from this and, and people should consider that when we're talking about the films of Robin Williams we should talk about what happened and people should be very aware of it. Absolutely uh, it's, yeah it's a really that's not what I meant at all. It yeah. shouldn't be overlooked 
because we feel we don't know enough. Well, we, you can, we do know enough. We know people. So you can post anything as long as you do it with uh, you know an open mind and realize that you're not there to sort of lay down the law and that you're if you're expressing some sort of empathy or encouraging greater concern for your fellow human beings and someone corrects your wordage or says that you know that may not be the way and if there's someone that has reason to tell you these things as long as you listen i think it's always fair game and i agree like that's yeah sorry i just really want to quickly clarify which is that i'm more speaking to the people who would judge robin williams or condemn him for feeling overwhelmed by whatever it is that has overwhelmed him and that's sort of what happened around philip seymour hoffman that really turned me off to okay say whatever you're thinking about this well no i I don't want to hear from people who want to be judgmental in this hour if you're if your inclination is empathy then i want to hear what you have to say so or that's movies. all i need movies are good yeah movies i wanted good. to uh to wrap this up and talk about movies like what's the uh i think there's been a couple of uh people talking about what's on netflix including the fisher king and i think uh the birdcage is on there and there are a couple of other options but like when you're gonna say like robin williams what's the movie that pops into your head like what are you gonna not, not even necessarily the one you even want to watch again but like what's the essential thing or the you? moment i'm also curious oh yeah i mean moment. i'm just like the, what's like the face what's the costume what like what comes into your head i always i mean just to reiterate what i was saying earlier i always go to the it's not your fault scene yeah, from goodwill yeah. hunting uh, See, David, is, I would think you might so be too great. cynical for Goodwill Hunting, and I like that you like it. I, I don't understand. Those words don't even make sense <laughs> to me. I don't. I just don't know what you're talking about. Goodwill Hunting is not. Is like so far beyond my ability to uh, judge in <laughs> with like you know acute critical faculties. If I'm capable of doing that for anything. Well, uh, I remember people is, were. I feel like people were cynical about his Oscar win for that. I feel like people were like, oh, they're just giving it to the comedian because he's trying to do something serious, as if Robin Williams hadn't done quite serious things his entire career. Or as actually, if he wasn't so. obviously talented regardless right. of what kind of roles he was playing. Yeah. Right. Um, I think, I mean, I think that this is partly nostalgia and partly just what it was burning in my brain, but I think of Mrs. Doubtfire, which I do think is a tremendous comedic performance. That movie itself, I mean, I can't really get enough distance on it, but I think <laughs> it's... Re- yeah, that's my, that's my moment. There's cream a on the face. that movie is yeah. so burned into our collective consciousness is because he's amazing in it. The entire it really scene, the, like the, the cake scene and the entire scene in the restaurant where he's running back and forth, like that, I mean before I'd ever seen a French farce like I got a sense of how that works and like how one person putting on a ridiculous wig can make absolutely anything work it's it's amazing and as much as you know Peter Sellers before him I mean I think it sort of uh, epitomizes how comedic performances even ones that are have that sort of virtuosity to them don't get the recognition and I don't just mean awards but like just the general recognition the genius involved in the performances yeah. that they deserve the thing, yep. I, I guess the, the movie moment or whatever that I want to end on is Ron Williams got so much flack later in his career for one of his earlier characters, which was like a, a pretty offensive gay stereotype that he did like in his early stand-up. But I think in doing The Birdcage, he really rehabbed that a lot because, yeah, it's a straight man playing a gay character, but the message of that movie is so, you know, healthy and positive. And I don't know. I, I love The Birdcage. I, I think love, it's a great film. I was thinking about trying to watch The Birdcage tonight, and then I said it was it's going yeah. to be too sad. And it was yeah. also, you know, That's when I'll rewatch a million times. It wasn't necessarily in the heart of the AIDS epidemic. I think it was a little bit um, 
you know, a- after it had it really, I don't want to, I mean, I have to be very careful with what the rhetoric it, that I use. It was 96. It was after, uh, where, it was after it was, it was after AZT, it had become less of an epidemic among white gay men in America. Right. But it was still, you know, and still is, but it was especially even then a, uh, a very big thing, and I think it was that much, especially because of how uh, much further we had to go back then, regardless of how much further we still have to go now, I think it was a, just to add to Joanna's point, a uh, bold move, and I think was done with the right kind of agenda. I think he it right. was coming from a personal place of saying, like, I am in a position to do in my limited capacity and we can only look to the we can only be so progressive with this film, but I'm going to do what I can. Um, and I think he did that, and still, still, even you know, with all those mitigating factors, uh, was able to cut through the whatever personal motives there may have been, and just give a brilliant comedic performance. Totally. Um, and for me, I mentioned Dead Poets Society. I'm a sucker for any like mentor story. I like Mr. Mm-hmm. Holland's Opus. Let's. So you know that Dead Poets. Society I was like, he was in ball. that. No, no, no. I'm said I'm I'm, I'm creating the, the spectrum That's of the bar yeah, yeah. he played yeah. the Opus. Uh, I also I also really like Robin Williams in Hamlet. Like it, okay. it makes me happy that, uh, that he makes Kenneth Branagh laugh. Like there's something about that that brings me joy. Um, and I I adore him in One Hour Photo. I just mm-hmm. think it's so bold of him to do it like age 50 after everything he did to do that movie and kind of and take a gamble on it. It's so freaking good. That paved the way to even darker fare, like World's Greatest Dad. World's Greatest Dad. I like Dad. World's Greatest Dad. Oh, yeah. Um, and they did some strange stuff, you know, along with the Jacob's Ladder phase. There was also the final cut, and which no Night one listener, saw. Night listener, I did not Night see. Night listener, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, insomnia. Uh, yeah, so, and Som- well, Insomnia was uh, was dark, yeah, but definitely of a more <laughs> commercial yeah, degree. Yeah. Maybe, especially in retrospect. Yeah, but he's really good at Insomnia because he doesn't show up until so late, and you're kind of, you know, he's built up as this crazy killer, and then what he does is a lot smaller than you would expect. At least that's how uh-huh. I remember it. It's been a long time since I saw Insomnia, yeah. but I liked him in that a lot. There are a yeah. lot of great um, Robin Williams movies to catch. This is a great legacy he has left behind, and it is sad that it's a legacy at this point, I guess. It is very sad, yeah. To, to wrap up, I guess echo what Katie said. I mean, we tried to broaden the conversation and, and take it upon just sitting here and uh, hanging our heads for, for 20 minutes. Moments of silence don't tend to work very well on podcasts, but, uh, <laughs> but we... Uh, yeah, he's, he's great, and wish wish he were still here. How important is that objective? Question one rates the poem's perfection. Question two rates its importance. And once these questions have been answered, determining the poem's greatness becomes a relatively simple matter. If the poem score for perfection is plotted on the horizontal of a graph... Mr. The Keating, they made everybody sign Anderson. you got to believe me, it's true. I do believe you, Tom. Leave, Mr. Keating. But it wasn't his fault. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. One more outburst from you or anyone else, and you're out of this school. Leave, Mr. Keating. I said leave, Mr. Keating. Captain, my captain. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. Do you hear me? Sit down. Sit down. This is your final warning, Anderson. How dare you? Do you hear me? 
that does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday with a review of the completely complimentary movies, The One I Love and Expendables 3. I'm really excited to try and tie them together thematically. I, uh, <laughs> we welcome your suggestions. Uh, in the meantime, uh, please tell people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I write all over the internet, and I try and put everything on mattpatches.com. And, uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. And we have a website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can leave us comments or suggestions or criticisms or questions, who, anything. You could comment or share our podcast. Everything you can do on a website, you can do on fightinginthewarroom.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the editor-at-large of Little White Lies magazine. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. And you can find all of us together, along with Joanna, uh, speaking to you live-ish on Facebook, (laughs) right on our wall, or right on yours. Uh, I'm Joanna Robinson. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can find me most days on VanityFair.com. You can listen to other podcasts I do, including a TV podcast called The Station Agents and a Legends of Korra podcast called Republic City Dispatch. Uh, if you want to call into the show, I believe you can call in 914-410-6450 and leave us a message, maybe your favorite Robin Williams impression, whatever it is you oh want to do. Um yeah, that's a can of worms. You're welcome. Otherwise, we won't play it. Delete. I'm Katie Rich. You can also find me uh, at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. You can also find the entire podcast on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can talk to us about Robin Williams or any number of things, or answer this week's lightning round question, which is... It is in honor of The Expendables 4, A New Hope, Three. Daughter of the Planet of the Arp. Oh, four, yes. <laughs> the AARP. Uh, yeah, what, what male star would you want to see added to a future Expendables entry? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. Fabulous, Harry. I love the feathers. When it comes to exotic type mammals, I'm telling you, it's a world class menagerie. Prince Hal-